All right, we're in 1 Peter 1, and we're only going to look at one verse today. Can you believe that? One verse. But it's a doozy of a verse. It really is. It's going to be something that, it's such a transitional verse in, in setting up what Peter's trying to unfold in this letter. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about kind of what it lays out for us this morning. Um, Again, you probably know this a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, I like history. I love history. Um, and so this week I, I came across a great uh, reminder of a great story uh, by one of our commentators. And I'm just going to share it back with you this morning. He tells a story of the Spanish Navy in 1558. You may be aware of this, right? The great Spanish Armada. The Navy attempting to attack and overthrow England under Queen Elizabeth I. And so they take 130 ships loaded with about 50,000 soldiers to um, invade the shores of England. And, uh, and so, you know, things don't look good. Spain, at that point, was, had mounted a pretty good significant international um, influence there, or European influence for sure. And if you're a history buff, you know that this was not just going to be an easy feat for them, even though that looked really daunting with 130 ships. That doesn't sound like that. Look, that's a big deal, right? But they also would have to get past the vastly superior English Navy. And if you know anything about history, you know the English Navy was a formidable, formidable opponent. Excuse my language. Excuse my, my grammar there. But the Spanish warships, though, in spite of how the, 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 the prestige of the uh, English Navy, they were vastly bigger, they were stronger, they, 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 were, they, they had vastly superior artillery on board, and again, not to mention the 50,000 soldiers going with them, but the English Navy was known for something different. Their superior commanders running their ships, as well as their ability to maneuver and at speed, unlike most navies of that day. And so the Spaniards knew before they set sail that this was not going to be an easy feat to, to, to reach the shores of England. Um, and they had hoped to succeed, and they knew that in order for them to succeed, uh, for them to succeed, they would have to hope that the English Navy would, 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 would put themselves in a place where they're a firing position of their vastly larger artillery. They had hoped, as the word there. They had hoped the English Navy would expose themselves to their heavy artillery. They had hoped that the English would engage them um, ship to ship or in hand fighting so that their many soldiers could run over on board to their ships and their large ships and then win the day. But as you well know, the well-worn statement, hope is not a plan. That's the problem sometimes the way we think about hope. It's, it's not a plan. It's an empty dream. So because at the end of the day, we, if you are familiar with this particular part of history, you know that the English did not fight. They kept their distance, and they shot at the Spaniard ships from afar away, and they blew them to pieces, and it was not a good day for the Spanish Navy. Hope is a, I'm sorry, misplaced hope is a hopeless endeavor. You ever thought about that? So many times when we begin to think about our lives and where we put our hopes at, when we begin to reassess, we understand that misplaced hopes are worthless endeavors. But when you find true hope, that a well-founded hope is actually a very potent thing, a very powerful thing. 
And as we look at 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 13, or actually from here all the way through chapter um, through verse 21 over the next couple of weeks, everything that Peter begins to unpack is about hope, what true hope is about. Not a misplaced hope, but a, a hope grounded in, a, in an object, an objective, a reality, a truth, a fact. Hope is the central pursuit, as Peter will show us, of the Christian life. It's not a flimsy hope, it's not, but it's a gritty and sturdy hope. And in our text uh, today, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at this morning, we're going to find that Peter reminds this church in Asia Minor, and by, by extension us, that Christ, the Lamb of God, ransomed us from a life of futility so that we would have a hope grounded in eternity. Amen. That's going to be our main idea this morning. Now, I tell you that story this morning to set us up for this main before we even get into our main text. Uh, I'm probably going to enter into a little bit of dangerous waters for a moment. But it's okay, you don't have to hear from me for another few weeks, okay? Um, because I believe that when we set our minds appropriately on Christ, we can look differently at the things that are unfolding right before our eyes, especially in the last week. And I'm fearful, I'm fearful that many Christians today, we feel that if we are, that, that beholding the great truths of our faith is largely an innocuous, behind-the-scenes um, reality that exists in the background of our life. That it doesn't have a real, true relevance to what's going on in front of us today. And I would like to ask you to challenge that notion if that exists in you this morning. But what we actually have is a, and what we actually possess in our hope in Christ is far more potent, far more powerful. It, it is gritty, as we're going to see. It's, it's sturdy, as I've said already. It's a hope that is relevant right in the midst of these days of griefs and burdens that we face right now. And the reason I want to make sure I say that clearly from the beginning is because the challenges we face today are just in this last week, as we will note. And I want to spend time praying for this near the end of our service. Um, they're enough to send our minds into crazy places, right? And we begin to get kind of spun around going, what, what, what are we to do? How, we, how are we to respond to these things? How are we to answer these things as God's people? Does a Christian have an answer to the things that are happening in Texas? And do they have an answer to the things that have happened in our own denomination, the SBC, and all the sexual abuse that is now being unfolded with 700 names? One of the things that we've made a priority here now is that I wasn't originally going to go to Anaheim to go to the SBC, but we feel now it's time for me to go with some other pastors because it's time for us to begin to do some hard work in the SBC. But what do we do with those things? When we get, our minds get caught up in a flurry of all that's happening, it can cause us and cause many Christians to, if we're not careful, to cause us to look for answers beyond the gospel. I see it a lot. You may see it a lot, if you pay attention, that we look for answers beyond the gospel, beyond the hope we profess, and then we begin to set our eyes on, what I just said a few minutes ago, misplaced hopes that might actually fix the problems that we face. That's what was kind of the heart of the blog I wrote earlier this week. And so to be clear, those things we face, school shootings, massacres, and Sexual abuse that has gone unreported in the SBC for two, three decades, even shoveled under, you know, the, the carpet. These are real realities, and they're grievous. Christians are right to feel them. In fact, I would say we should feel them to some degree. We are right 
to allow them to cause us to search the deepest parts of our souls and ask God why and how we might respond tangibly for these things. These are all absolutely fundamentals to the Christian faith. But what I want to suggest is that by the providence of God, as we look at verse 13 this here this morning, what we're going to see is that God has planned this verse right now for this Sunday for the very things that we faced in the last week. And I want to tell you why I know that. Because I planned on preaching this one verse essentially right before the sabbatical started weeks ago. As kind of this kind of way to kind of set up the rest of the preaching for the next four or five weeks or six weeks for these guys who are coming to preach after me. And the, the substance of this is hope. Real hope. Not a flimsy kind of weak and powerless hope, but a real potent, powerful hope that you and I can behold and we can take hold of as God's people. It, it, it does not mean when we look at this hope, though, that somehow no, that means that we just have spiritual answers to all the things going on in the world. There are going to be literal things that we must do, we must think about as citizens of this world. That, that's going to come with some hard deliberations and some conflicts and some arguments and divisions. We know that's going to be the case. But for the Christian... It never supplants the hope we have in Christ. Ever. So, here's our main idea this morning. Thank you for permitting me to say all that up front. The gospel-shaped life, as we will see here in verse 13, demands that we live with a hope set on the future grace of God, which is being prepared through sober-minded Christians for action. Ready for action. I'll say it again. The gospel-shaped life demands that we live with a hope set on future gra- the future grace of God with prepared minds and sober minds ready for action. Let's just read verse 13. That's all we're going to read this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So there's a, there's a, a command there. We've got preparing minds for action. And being sober-minded. So there's a certain quality of thinking we must achieve and aspire for. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See it? So what is Peter saying? Therefore, this is kind of unpack the text. Let's look at it for a second here. Get Get a feel for what it's trying to say. Therefore, that therefore is, what is it therefore? It's to remind us of everything we've been studying the last few weeks in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 namely the gospel that all Christians should profess. Therefore, because of this great gospel, because of the great truth in which you and I profess as believers this morning, there is a great therefore, there's a great implication, there's a great imperative that you and I must lay hold of as God's people. And he says what that imperative is. Well, the imperative is not prepare your minds and be sober-minded. Actually, that's not the imperative. The imperative actually is what comes in the last part of the verse. Therefore, Set your hope on the grace that is, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by, going back to reverse engineering, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The central verb here is set your mind, set your hope. Therefore, because of the gospel, set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you. And, the, and how do you do that? By preparing your minds and being sober-minded. So that's, the, that's the right way to look at the verse, really, in some ways. If you want to look at it, wait, 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 we would talk about it. You got the great, therefore, set your hope. And then, the impl- and then, and then this kind of supporting pr- uh, participles that go under that, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. 
That's going to kind of set up the structure for us this morning, uh, this verse. And I hope we'll serve the guys coming after me for a few weeks well as we look together. And so if you look at the verse that way, set your hope, right? Therefore, set your hope on the grace that is brought to you, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That encompasses the first thing that I want to talk about this morning, which is the gospel life is a call to a present, gritty, and sturdy hope in future grace. Okay? So you just look at the main verb, hope, the Christian life is a hope that is present, gritty, and sturdy in future grace. That's, that's, the, that's the, where the Christian stands on that. The church stands on that. Got it? Are you following, tracking my idea here? The support for that, or the how to that, comes after that when we look back at the early part of the verse, is the hope in future grace then requires a prepared and sober mind. Make sense? That's how we're going to deal with this text this morning. So let's look at the first part of this. All right? The Christian life is a call to a present, gritty, and sturdy hope in future grace. The gospel life is a call to a sturdy and gritty hope in future grace. So what we find here is imperatives. Because of the gospel that we've been studying the last few weeks, now Peter goes to some imperatives. Okay, now, again, a little bit of gospel theology 101 here. You never find an imperative in the scriptures without it being anchored in an indicative. And if you don't know what that is, let me explain what that means by that. Imperatives are commands. Indicatives are matters of fact, matters of reality. So what Peter's doing here, he says, I'm giving you an imperative, but where, on what? Not on you, not on your worthiness, not on your ability, not on your own strength. But I'm giving you an imperative based on what? God, his saving work for you. You, you never look at God's the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, without considering what is the indicative on which it stands. Okay? That's really, really important when we look at indicative, uh, imperatives in Scripture. Because what happens a lot of times when people begin to look at imperatives or commands in Scripture, they just begin to turn the Bible into this rule book, this command book, this, like, okay, i gotta, I got to do all these things in order to make everybody happy, make God happy, and that could not be further from the truth. Imperatives always stand on a sure foundation of the indicatives of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? You can give me a nod, you can give me an amen, yes, pastor, I hear what you're saying, right? I just hope that you're hearing me here. So when we come across these imperatives for the Christian life in the pages of Scripture, we must always remember they arise from this, 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 this fixed reality of our Christian life, which is the finished accomplishments of the Son of God. In other words, what God has done for us in Christ grounds and governs how we are to live our lives in response to that. Make sense? What God has done for us in Christ grounds and governs how we are to live our lives in response to that. You, you really can't have an indicative without an imperative, and you can't have an imperative without an indicative. And the reason why I say that is because they're inseparable realities. They're two sides of the same coin, right? Um, but let's also make sure we don't make a mistake here in this, that we don't make them indistinguishable from one another. Because your hope is not in your ability to obey. Even sometimes we can trick ourselves in that. So then what we'll do is we'll kind of become fruit inspectors of our life. 
And then we look at all the things that are going on around us and we fall in this trap where, okay, I'm not really a Christian if I don't see certain amounts of fruit or certain progress in fruit in my life. Now, there's something really wonderful about that truth for the Christian. We certainly do want to see God's see fruit grow on our, on our branches. But the amount of fruit that's on your branch is not indicative of the great work from which Christ has accomplished for you in Jesus. Okay? And so I want to make sure we say that in front, we don't, that even though these cannot, these don't exist apart from one another, they're also, they're very much distinguishable from one another, right? The gospel is not your work. Okay, so when we talk about these imperatives, the gospel is not your work. Our sanctification and our growth in holiness is not your, it's not all your work alone, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit through you that God produces the fruit that's through you as you continue to abide in the vine that God has placed you on. So then if you want to then begin to think about your fruit uh, uh, legitimately, is that your fruit it's, it's, less about, it's less about the fruit that gives evidence to visible faith, but it's more about faith that actually gives real fruit. And so what you should be looking for in your fruit is that that then drives you back to a deeper faith. Not so much your fruit goes back and makes you question whether or not you have faith. I have this conversation with believers quite often. And when we reverse the two ideas, when we begin to kind of mix and match these things, or we flatten the idea between what God commands us to do versus what God has done for us in Jesus, and we flatten it down to this, like little, this little nice little pancake, what we end up doing is we end up moralizing the gospel, and therefore we, there is some measure of my own personal righteousness that is required for our salvation. And that's just simply not true according to Scripture. No, holiness is a product of God's love, it's a product of God's grace. It's a product of his power. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago in terms of how Peter structures this first few verses of his letter. It's like a gospel sandwich. We've got the gospel, the first verses 1 through 12, and then you get verse 13 through 21. It's kind of like the, the filling of the, uh, of the sandwich, and then you get the top of the sandwich is what comes after that, which is a, this great um, indication of this church and what the church is visibly to the world. And we're, in the, we're beginning the stage where we're talking about the feeling of the Christian life. Our holiness, the reason it's important is because it brings flavor to your gospel witness. It brings flavor to my gospel witness. It's, it's, it's how when we commend the gospel to the world, people can say, taste and see that the Lord is good in Psalm 37. Our holiness functions that way in our lives, and that's the way we got to look at our fruit. The reason we want fruit, the reason we want to be obedient, the reason we want to strive after holiness is not that we would prove that we're savable or that God has saved us, but that rather we can come into the world the greatness of our God who has saved us and has produced what's wonderful fruit on the vine. I mean, think about it when you used to brag about like your grandma's recipe, like whatever that recipe was. I had an aunt who used to make the most divine macaroni and cheese. I mean, it was wonderful. And there was this whole secret that used to run around my mom and my aunts about how they, this, this particular macaroni and cheese. And I think only one of them actually has that recipe, even though my aunts passed away now. But the reality is, what were you bragging about? My aunt Shelby's ability to make a vastly superior macaroni and cheese than the rest of my aunts and uncles. And even my grandmother. And my grandmother hated that. Right? You're bragging on Aunt Shelby. Your fruit 
is about you bragging about the goodness and grace of God. It's about you going to the world and being able to show the world that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why you want the fruit that, G, that Peter's going to call us to this morning. And so a full stop statement here. We can't grasp the indicatives of the gospel. In other words, the truth of it, the reality of it, the fixed nature of it by God's measure alone without the imperatives of God's people recognizing that our fruit is about our enjoyment of that reality. My holiness and your holiness as hard as it may come by sometimes in our lives, it's really a, it, is a, it is a message that we are enjoying the goodness of God. So that's what Peter wants us to see in this next few verses. So let's just kind of look at the text here. Set your hope, it says. Therefore, we said, based on everything we said before, set your hope. For Peter, the word set your hope, the way he uses hope, the same way that we find Paul using the word faith, right? Um, hope is faith in Peter's vocabulary. True believers trust God for their future. For Peter and Paul, hope and faith, it is essentially this, true believers trust God for their future. That's what it means to hope. That's what it means to have faith. They were trusting God for our future. In the same way that I mentioned a minute ago about the, the, the sabbatical and, the, and how unnerving it is, humanly speaking, that this is kind of like bringing, uh, God has to bring some humility here in this reality. I'm trusting God for the future of this church by taking some time away, resting, refreshing, and revisioning what God wants us to do for the next three to five, ten years, whatever that may be. And it's the same thing for us. When we set our hope, the believer is setting their hope not on the tangibles, the intangibles of our lives, all the things about what's happening in our bank account, what's happening in our retirement, what's happening in our, 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 our value of our homes, or what's happening in our anything else you want to talk about. No, the believer puts our hope not in the intangibles of everything going on in our world, but in the future grace of God. To hope is to believe that everything God has started in grace towards us in Jesus Christ will be completely fulfilled in his own good time and it will be so immeasurably good and so immeasurably tasty for the Christian that you and I can't even begin to fathom it right now. See, God's saving work in one sense is an unfinished reality. Now, when I say that, that does not mean that your faith right now in Jesus Christ is fixed. Right? So you can ensure that you have faith in Jesus and as, as you continue to build and grow in that faith, your salvation for the future is fixed. But there is another sense in which the Bible describes our salvation as something that is very much not yet realized. And we've said this a couple times over the last few weeks, that we await a grace that will only be ours when Jesus returns for his second time. That grace will complete our sanctification. Even if now our sanctification feels like we're this is one of my favorite words, like, like swimming in hummus. You ever feel like that? Like you're swimming in hummus or oatmeal? It's like that's, no one likes that feeling. Like you feel like sometimes in your own progress in faith that things just seem incredibly too hard. It's like in quicksand. Sometimes that's what we feel like in our spiritual lives. But even if we feel like that in our own sanctification, we know that by grace that our sanctification will be made complete when Jesus returns. Our holiness is not final and it's not full until Jesus returns. And friends, this is profoundly good news for us this morning. It's good news for me at least. It helps me, helps us keep moving forward even if life feels dreadfully incomplete, woefully incomplete. 
So that is the sturdy and the gritty hope that we lean on for future grace. But what then do we do in setting our hope on this grace? What is it that we, how do we set our hope on this future grace? That's what Peter's getting at here. And he gives us these two participles. They're parts of speech of the main verb. They, they support the main verb. You are setting your hope on grace by preparing your mind for action and by being sober-minded. So let's look at those two things. This is our second point and final point. Hope in future grace requires a prepared and sober mind. First, preparing our minds for action literally means girding up your loins. If you go to look at NIV, look at other um, different versions, they would use the word girding up your loins. And you've seen this and heard this throughout the New Old Testament. You probably know exactly what it is. You probably have one particular story in mind, and you're right. It's from Exodus 12, primarily, when God is there on the Passover night. And what is he doing? He is preparing them to... Um, to be ready for action when all, everything unfolds from that night's last plague against the firstborn of Egypt. So you got to know that men wore these flowing robes, right, as their main dress code back then. And in order for them to get to work, or maybe if they were in battle, they would have to take the, the, the robe and they'd have to pull it up and they'd have to tuck it into their belt so that they could be ready for action, ready for work. Strenuous labor required them to hitch those robes up, tuck them in, and get after it. And so again, on that night of Passover, God commands his people, be ready, gird up your loins, and he gives them all these instructions on how they're prepared to move in light of what is about to transpire that very evening by God's own judgment over Egypt. Now what you and I need to recognize when we read Exodus 12 is that this is like a, like a type. It's a type and shadow of what God wants for his church. Amen. It pictures forth the kind of life the church is to live in response to God's grace. That night, God was going to show unmerited grace for Egypt by passing them over, judging Egypt, and then rescuing them and leading them into their own liberty out from Egypt. That's what he does for a Christian. He passes over the sins of the Christian by the Lamb of God slain for them and the blood that is now over their doorpost of their life. And what does God do in that moment for them? He then he releases the captives. They are now at liberty. This typifies the Christian life. The hitching up your robe is also a typified way the Christian should look at their life. We're hitching up our robes and we're getting after it, my brothers and sisters. And we're getting to work. And this should be convicting to us as professing Christians when we, approach, um, when we approach our relationships with the grace of God through the church and through his word and through prayer. There's too many Christians, listen to me, and please just lean in on this idea for a second. There are too many Christians that are entirely too passive when it comes to their relationship to the church, when it comes to their relationship with God's word, and, and they're entirely too passive when it comes to their relationship with God himself through prayer. They're not girding up their loins and getting to work based on the grace of God that has been granted them in Jesus. The proper life that reflects the impact and hope of grace in our lives is not a passive response, but an active response, a gloriously active response. Jesus even said this to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. He told them, you must stay dressed for action. This is part of the Christian life, whether we like it or not. Now, our hope's not in our dress for action. Our hope is what God has fixed for us in Jesus. 
And the proper response to that fixed thing is now to live with people ready for action. People who partake in the saving provisions of God must be prepared for the empowerment that they receive to walk in the freedom thus. Now, we all know what happened in Egypt when they got out there in the wilderness, right? They complained. We would have been better off in our slavery. Some of us do the same thing today, right? We put the robe down. We live passively to the circumstances of our lives and we complain well maybe we would have been better off if we could just go get a nice little safe life doing i'm having a nice padded income and you know we can just live so peacefully of everything that goes on in our lives and friends this is absolutely contrary to the scriptures romans 12 1 through 2 calls us and paul this idea of preparing comes from paul same idea be transformed therefore by the renewing of your minds So to prepare yourselves for action, and particularly to prepare your mind for action, is to be renewing our minds and directing our thoughts consistently to the mercies of God in Jesus. You cannot fix the problems of your life by simply continuing to use the old, worn-out tools of the world. You only address those things, and they may come slowly, but you only address issues when it comes to jobs and, and, and struggles with relationships or, or, or marriages or, 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 or our politics or nations. You don't, you don't deal with them but with any other tools by then a, a Christian renewing their mind that is set on the mercies of God in Christ. What Peter is saying here, therefore, because of the mercies of God, prepare for action. Prepare your minds for action. Set your entire minds on this. Like, don't store up trivialities, trivial hopes of this world, but to, but, but to store up your hopes and the thoughts on the true liberating power of Jesus through his word. This is what Christians need to do more and more these days. The unrestrained responses that are empty, there are so many unrestrained responses that I, I see out in the world. I see, it, I see it in myself. I do it all the time. That are empty of what appears to me virtually any gospel truth by, by Christians, whether it's on social media or whatever else, they indicate something to me. And they indicate something about myself when I've done it myself. And so I'm pointing the finger back at myself. I've done this. They, 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 they probably emphasize that I don't really have myself a prepared mind with the gospel hope that is mine in Jesus. It demonstrates that I think, and, my, and I, and I think probably if all of us want to be honest with ourselves, we are too prone to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine in the world. When we always think that the answer is something beyond the gospel, that's what we're doing. We're being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So that's what it means to be prepared minds. To have the gospel so fixed and the mercies of God so fixed in your heart and mind. That no matter what decision you end up making in regard, whatever decisions we have to make as a nation in spite of the things we're facing right now, whatever those decisions end up being, our hopes are so fixed on the mercies of God that we know that the only eternal, the only eternal remedy to those things is Jesus and the work he's accomplished for us in Christ. And it says to be sober-minded in our thinking. I, I think this has to do with the quality of our thinking. The quality of our thinking has to do with our appetite. What's the appetite of your thinking? Are you 
Are you tempted to be intoxicated or, or drunk with some things that are not Christ? We are to be drunk in Christ. Did you know that, right? The Bible doesn't say not to be drunk. It says being drunk in Christ. Be intoxicated by him, not by the things of this world. To be sober-minded, then, is to be balanced and self-controlled. See, Peter wants to remind the church in the midst of these things that they face right there in Asia, Asia Minor, he wants them to be reminded that they need to be realistic about what they face. They need to be clear-minded in the midst of those trials that they face. To the opposite of that, as I've already said, is to be drunk on the cares of the world. To be drunk on the cares of the world is to, to enter fully in folly, to entertain folly in our life, a lack of discipline. When, when you see this in the scriptures, to be drunk on wine, to be drunk on sex, to be drunk on anger, to be drunk on fear, to be drunk on greed, whatever that may be. If we are prone to be intoxicated by anything else as a remedy to the things that we face in this world, we must repent and turn back to Christ. This is a message for the church. We have been too easily lured into spiritual drowsiness and we lose sight of, our, of Christ's future for us. We have been too enamored by the need to attend to earthly desires and concerns that we neglect the very shepherd of our souls. May it not be. This is what the trials of life can do in our lives. They can cause us to develop a, a blunt edge, to be drawn too easily into the intoxicating embrace of sin and justify doing it all the way there. Consider Lot, you know, Abraham's nephew. Great example here, right? Lot, having been graciously delivered from Sodom, he lost his own wife on the way out of Sodom because she herself looked back to Sodom because her hopes were somewhat earthly dashed. He didn't. It looks like things are great. He experiences the grace of God. But in a moment of weakness, in a moment the trial took and consumed him in that cave of Zoar, he allowed himself to become drunk because of the trials that he had just faced. Losing his wife and whatnot. His entire livelihood... See, for him, temporarily, the wife that his, I mean, the, the wine that his daughters had offered him provided some relief, but it was temporary relief. And we all know what happened after that. He fell into disgraceful sin that reaped bitter consequences, not only for himself and his family, but for Israel for many, many years through the presence of the Moabites and the Amorites. When Christians in the midst of painful realities and grievous realities, still turn to the instruments of the world to numb our pain. Short-sighted answers to life's deepest problems. We're forgetting our hope. Peter is not asking them to hope in something that's subjective, like a subjective feeling or a good intention of hope. But what he is asking them to hope in is something, an objective reality for their hope. And that objective reality is in the accomplishments and the finished work of Jesus. And friends, the church never can get enough of that. And the church can never turn enough back to that. The people of God can never turn enough back to those things. 
And it's there that we begin the work of faith and repentance. If you're in the quagmire of all of life's trials and you just don't know what to do, can I just suggest to you, you need to turn back to the lover of your soul. Jesus is the lover of your soul. Right now. So how would we apply these things and kind of finish our time together? One, our own own ongoing, excuse me, ongoing growth in hope of future grace is one that the Christian must discipline himself or herself for. We must discipline ourselves for this hope in this so that we would remain hopeful. Like we don't produce it. This is produced by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 1 and 2 of this great chapter. We don't produce it. The Spirit's work in us through the ministry of the Word and through the church. We don't produce it, but the grace of God establishes us in it. It keeps us in the grace of God and finishes that transformation in us in time. We must, though, because of that great future hope we have and our hope in it, future grace we have and our hope in it, we must discipline ourselves for it. And then we do it through the work of ministry of the church. We do this through the ministry of brothers and sisters in Christ. We do this through the ministry of the word. We do this through the ministry of the sacraments. This is how we do it, the ordinary means of grace. Number two, our growth in holiness will be complete only when Jesus returns. So take heart. You got a long way to go. As long as Jesus tarries, you got a long way to go. The Christian life is not a pursuit of perfectionism. It's a pursuit of the perfect Christ. You get it? It's not a pursuit of perfectionism. It's the pursuit of the perfect Christ. This is what we're about. Number three, our hope grows by our participation in God's work of grace. Again, I've said it already, but I want to say it clearly. The ordinary means of grace are very much fixed in the church. We cannot, we cannot believe that we are going to be somehow or another continue to grow in grace if we don't take, take you, make use of the instruments of grace. And that is the local church, the ministry of the word, the sacraments that he gives through baptism and communion. These are things that we should never neglect in our lives, but we too often do, don't we? We let all kinds of other things get in our way. And last, our ongoing growth of hope requires that we be on guard by the intoxicating power of sin. Sober-mindedness requires us to do this. That we must be diligent to identify the intoxications of the world. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, John Owen said. It's true. It's not enough to try to avoid sin. It's, it's, it's actually the proper posture is to go be killing it. Because as soon as we stop doing anything with sin, sin will start doing something to you. (laughs) It just does. It does it in my life. has done it many times in my life, sadly. So let me kind of pull all this back around and we're going to close it. You know, as a father, I wrote this in my article this week. I'm like you, I hope. I have hopes as a father. I send my wife and I send my children into public schools. And that's terrifying. But the answer, because that can happen anywhere, though. It can happen in your grocery store. It can happen in your mall. It can happen in this church. That's why we have security teams running around out here. My hope isn't some futile kind of attempts to do this. My hope has to be the mercies of God. As an SBC pastor, my hope is that we'll get our act together in the SBC. And dang it, I'm going to go to work on that. 
It's good things. The church should be a place of integrity and our structure should be places of integrity and we should be handling people's things. And, we're, and actually we have our women's ministry working on helping us create some, some good, good policies to how we would handle people who have been victims of some type of abuse. I want that. I want our denomination to have integrity again. But you know what? It's not just the SBC. This is indicative of a lot of evangelicalism in our world. We just happen to be the biggest target on the, on the wall with the SBC. And as American, I want, to, I want to do like everyone here probably wants to do. I want to preserve the treasured freedoms, the treasured values that have been bulwarks of what, we, what it means to be an American citizen. So I'm speaking as a husband, as a, as a pastor, as a, you know, a pastor in terms of vocation, and I'm speaking as an American citizen. I have all those things, just like you do. But as a Christian, that transcends everything about all those other realities, does it not? I have to remember that the hope that I hold on to in Jesus is way more gritty, way more sturdy than the flimsy little things that we try to do in this world to fix our problems. I have a much sturdier hope, a much more relevant hope right now. And Christian, you would do well to point your friends and point your, 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 whoever your relationships are to that sturdy hope and gritty hope that you have in Jesus. I see it and I hear it too many times. Christians scolding Christians for not to, by, who, who say, don't throw a Bible verse at these things. Don't throw a Bible verse at these shootings. Don't throw a Bible verse at, uh, at sexual abuse. And in some sense, let me say this. I, I agree with that notion in some, in some measure. I do. You know why? Because I do think that there are Christians out there who do have a, a reductionistic and superficial way in which they handle the gospel and they don't really ever dig into the real grief that people face. So I want to make sure we're clear about that. If that is your impulse, lovingly, I'd say we need to grow up, right? But I'd also say to you, if your impulse is to scold Christians who are trying to bring their hope into the real, real grief of the world, I'd also say to you, you need to grow up too, because that's the only hope you have. That's the only hope you and I have. The simplicity of the gospel and how it shapes our worldview and shapes the way we see that frees us from the air of being drunk on every other issue in the world. As much as those issues may grieve us, if it prevents us from these virtue signaling kinds of approaches to life. It, 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 makes, us, it makes the thinly veiled uh, pronouncements that others, make, uh, others against brothers and sisters in Christ who honestly are, 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 are trying their best to just bring a little bit of hope and a little bit of light in the world. It reveals to us that when we put our hope in Jesus, or, we, or, we're, or we're, I'm sorry, when we're too willing to kind of set aside that spiritual truth about who we are, that we might be growing a little too dull to the gospel and our hope in it. Church, I just hope that we would turn it about face in that. Not that I'm pointing my finger at any one person in this room. I'm just saying that I think this is very indicative of the things we see, right? No, friends. Like Peter, we are prepared minds for action. So there is real action. We can speak into the real grief that people face on the ground of the gospel. Yes? Amen? Jesus, help us this morning as we now prepare ourselves for the table.